Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's go to Allison Williams. She's a senior banks analyst at uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, you've been, you worked at Morgan Stanley. Allison, you've covered this stock forever. Uh, just put into perspective Mr. Gorman's reign here. How does the street pursue his, his performance as CEO? So obviously the biggest thing that Gorman did when he was at uh, Morgan Stanley is to transform the business to uh, wealth and asset management. So 26% in 2010, that went to 52% um, in 2022. That's of pre-tax income. Um, and I would say that, you know, for me personally, when I was at Morgan Stanley, the first time I met uh, James Gorman was at Merrill Lynch, um, and he did a tremendous job there came into Morgan Stanley to run their wealth business, um, you know, was elevated to CEO, really has uh, transformed that business. At this, That does sort of uh, perhaps give an edge to Andy Saperstein. He's the one who's running wealth management now. He's an heir apparent along with Ted Pick, who runs the institutional business. Um, but Ted Pick also has uh, done a tremendous job with their trading business, turning things around first in fixed income um, and then the broader business and gaining share in both fixed income and equities under over the long term. So he said within 12 months, uh, Allison, do we, and that's a relatively short time frame. Do you, do you have a sense or uh, of when this may occur or a natural time, do you think? So I think that this is a natural time. If we think back to when uh, Lloyd Blankfein retired, um, you know, he made the point at the, at the time that he wanted to step away in a calmer time for markets and um, turnover leadership uh, before we had before we had more turmoil. And I think that did successfully put David Solomon in place um, with time to have looked at the business. If you recall, they had their first investor day, and within um, weeks, we uh, had the global pandemic take hold. And so I think the reason why this is timely for Morgan Stanley is, you know, we're just past the pandemic. There's still a lot of economic and monetary policy uncertainty for sure. But as you know, Paul, there, there always is. There's always right. going to be. But we're past the pandemic. We're, we've digested. Uh, the company has digested two major acquisitions uh, that they did: E Trade and Eaton Vance. And so it does seem a calmer time and perhaps the right time to pass the baton. Any is it is this going to be a typical succession where you've got two clear and maybe even a third uh, person in the running for the job that whoever does not get the job then leaves the firm? Is that kind of the expectation here? I mean, that, that is what does tend to happen. Um, these are, uh, you know, Ted and Andy are both um, very strong leaders um, and, as I said, have, have in their own right their own success stories that have right. contributed uh, to the overall uh, firm. Uh, certainly, I, I think that each 
does have bigger aspirations. So, you know, that's that's the kind of thing I think we'll, ha- we'll have to see. Do we have any idea what James Gorman is thinking to do here? Is this a true retirement or do you expect him to show up some other place in a, in a meaningful way? I think that I think it is a, a, a true retirement. He's sort of going out on top. Right. And he is going to he has said that he will stay with the firm, um, as you know, is sort of typical um, you know, just just as uh, Ken Jacobs said the other day with Lazard, you know, he will he will stay on the firm. It will ensure some continu- continuity with the clients and with the management. Um, but uh, but again, you never you never say never. Yep. You know what? This kind of my my second thought after seeing this news. First thought being you know good for Mr. Gorman because uh, he's had a heck of a run. The second thought was. This has to shine the light once again on Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan. I, no one wants Jamie Dimon to leave. I can't imagine any of the shareholders, any of the board members. But if I were a board member, I'd be just making sure we have our ducks in a row as it relates to uh, any type of succession. What's the feeling at Morgan Stanley these days? I, I'm sorry, at J.P. Morgan these days. So I think, um, as, as you know, Jamie Dimon is, is consistently asked the question because that is um, one of the biggest concerns for investors. Uh, you know, we look at uh, James Gorman, who was at the helm for a long period of time, but Jamie Dimon is really the one who led J.P. Morgan even before the global financial crisis um, and has had continuity even through uh, through the most recent uh, crisis. And he has consistently said that, you know, there are plans in place. I'm sure it's something that that he and the board talk with all the time, and they always have a huge slate of contenders at any point in time at J.P. Morgan in terms of of who could be next to run the bank. Uh, To your point earlier, we have seen some of those contenders leave in previous uh, shakeups or uh, potentially just getting a little bit antsy um, in terms of wanting to go on to do other things, and they uh, sort of uh, proliferate some of the other banks across Wall Street in terms of their leadership, um, but also extremely timely since we do have the J.P. Morgan Investor Day on Monday. Oh, this, oh, oh. This, what, talk to, yes. What's, what's the, the, the number one thing you are going to be looking for? What could make news for us on Monday? The number one thing I'm looking for and that could make news is anything that they would say on the expense front, right? So, we have a look into a lot of the macro variables, but expenses are really something that are truly up to management's discretion to the investment opportunities that they see. And so we think that that's where we could potentially get the biggest surprise. We have already gotten a big lift to the net interest income outlook with their most recent earnings. Could we get further upside there? I would say yes, potentially. We think that they were um, being conser- still still a little bit conservative when we look at sort of the, the underlying variables, keeping in mind that monetary policy is uncertain. So could get a little bit there. We will get an update on trading and banking fees. Again, we can see in the environment um, banking fees studying at a lower level. Um, trading still good, but probably softer than a year ago. Credit will also be a big focus. Are there any incremental um, – is there any incremental insight we could yep. get – especially with regard to commercial real estate, office loans, et cetera. We expect maybe they'll provide some more granularity. Um, But again, looking for these expenses. Great stuff. I'm sure we'll be chatting with you next week on that. Allison Williams, Senior Global Banks Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's also the Co-Director of Research for the Americas for Bloomberg Intelligence. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Big news out of, out of Morgan Stanley. I think the right move, it just shows what a nice succession plan can look like. You know, we'll see how it plays out. But they've got a bench. And they've got some good choices, so hopefully it'll work out. And the race is not over. Yep, the race is not over. Let's continue our discussion of the banks. We'll focus on some of the regional banks. We'll focus on some of the uh, the credit side of the equation, because we can do that here, because we have Bloomberg Intelligence. 400 analysts covering 2,000 companies, 130 industries. BI Go on the terminal is a function you need, you need to get access to the best uh, research on Wall Street. Uh, check it out. Herman Chan uh, and Arnold Kakuda, they are two of the analysts we have at Bloomberg Intelligence. Arnold focuses on the regional banks and uh, I'm sorry, uh, Herman focuses on the regional banks and Arnold Kakuda focuses on the credit side of the equation for all the banks here. So uh, Herman, let's start with you here. Any, I haven't sensed any, you know, kind of big potholes blowing up over the last couple of weeks. It seems to have been pretty calm. What's your read of what's happening in the regional bank space yeah, these days? It, it definitely has calmed down a, a lot. Um, you, I think it's interesting that Western Alliance of all the banks is the bellwether these days with, with them announcing $2 billion of deposits um, in the second quarter coming back to the bank. And that's really calmed the waters for the rest of the the industry which is really interesting to see and and uh, and from an industry perspective we've seen deposits really stabilize um, over the past couple of months um, after the the big uh, spike down in march and uh, consequently there hasn't been a lot of emergency fed borrowings from the discount window now i'm curious also because what does this mean in terms of changes herman there's a sense that it's going to get more expensive for banks banks of many different sizes now that we've seen some fail how soon are investors turning the page to look at the next phase for these banks yeah i, I think if you look at the valuations where, where they're uh, trading below tangible book value on average uh, a lot of the negativity is really priced in so you've got uh, tougher regulatory uh, regime coming with, with uh, tougher liquidity requirements, higher capital requirements. Uh, Arnold can talk about um, increasing the debt issuance for, for the larger regionals. 
you've got higher expenses from the FDIC assessment, you have weaker margins, you have lower lending, you've got higher costs for deposits. So it, it's, it's still a tough fundamental view. I want to bring in Arnold here for a second here because the stock price story of PacWest this week makes it seem like we're all in the clear. But when you look at how their bonds are trading, it's still 31 cents on the dollar. They've barely moved. Actually, they've kind of gotten worse throughout the month. Western Alliance has done a little better, but it's still at 64 cents on the dollar. This is well below par. What are the bonds telling you about how investors feel about the stories? Well, I guess, uh, you know, we live in this world of, you know, it's like a factory. 18 days since the Lance Bank failure, right? So, um, you know, recently- the I'm bank- not even counting. <laughs> I've been counting. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it, it's, you know, these, these two banks have suffered multiple rating downgrades and definitely lots of concern. But I think, you know, and, and as Herman said, these, these kind of are the bellwethers right now. And, um, but really, you know, we've had a sea change in, in regional bank bond space where it used to be uh, before 2023, these were, they didn't issue a lot of debt, they traded very tight. You couldn't get enough of it, right? Now it's, oh my gosh, you know, these things are really dangerous. You might get zero. And um, with upcoming regulation, these guys might need to issue a lot more debt. So, so um, I think the way to play this is, um, you know, we had Charles Schwab coming to market, I think a day or two ago, um, you know, and, and you know, we know there's gonna be more and more uh, bank debt issuance from this space. And it's going to come really wide. So, so I think that's an opportunity for, for you know, um, portfolio managers to come step in little by little if, if they want to get in this. All right. Market. So just broadly defined, if I look at the bond market for the banks, the big banks, what's it telling you here? I mean, is it telling you that they're concerned about there's any unusual concerns in this system or are they kind of trading as they should trade? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. The, the, the regionals have definitely underperformed, you know, definitely the, um, you know, just, just as we've seen the deposits kind of gravitate towards JP Morgan, that's been kind of the, the safety in the space. And and kind of, you know, even within the big six banks, really the, the, the banks with more of a kind of regional footprint, like, like the Bank of America and Wells Fargo with a lot of kind of long dated mortgages, those have underperformed a bit, but, but you know, the preference definitely has been with these, uh, the biggest banks. Okay, toss up for the star panel here, because you saw Schwab come to market, issue debt. Does that mean that the capital markets are open for the banking system? And does that mean that we're kind of more closer to the all clear? You think back to Silicon Valley Bank trying to tap equity markets, and that set off a run on the bank. Yeah, I, I think you know you, you, nobody wants to really issue equity uh, in, in this market, given how much the valuations have come down, right? And I think you know what was it, um, Western Alliance uh, or, or I think it was PacWest. Oh, you know, they they looked were looking for a solution or an equity raise, and then you know the, the opportunity wasn't right, right? So uh, I think that that's a that's a you know no for now. But you know the way these guys, you know th- these regional banks have less regulation, they're, they're viewed as under equitized, right? Less capital because they've been able to exclude these unrealized losses in their available sale per, uh, securities from their regulatory capital, right? So on, a, on an adjusted basis compared to what, what the bigger banks like the JP Morgans have to do, right? They look undercapitalized. So, you know, we, we think regulation will increase from that sp- standpoint as well, but right now they look under-equitized right now. So when the banks report earnings, the big investment banks, the, oftentimes they come to the market and raise debt. What's that all about? 
Oh, they need to. It's basically, you know, over the past three, they actually, so let me step back. The past three years have been extremely active for these big GSIBs, and, and that's because is uh, a, global systemically important yeah, banks. See, we have lives. We don't, we're not into that stuff. <laughs> I was I'm, gonna I'm, say, I'm gonna that's for, not just a normal I'm going to speak acronym. for our audience, too. We have, we have social lives. We don't know what GSIBs are. Okay, I don't so have go a ahead. social life. I know what a GSIB is. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's these systemically important banks uh, that, that if, they cannot fail. Right, and so part of that process, you know, we saw in 2008, the the you know when these guys got into trouble, the government had to step in with equity investments. Okay. Well, in the U.S. and and, and Europe, we, we can't have that anymore. So what we have instead is these big banks need to have a big liability stack, debt really that that in a case of a crisis that can be used as the new equity, right? Okay. And, and so that that's what the, this TLAC uh, regulation is total loss absorbing capacity, and, and so that that's where. We've seen a lot of volatility with these regional banks, so maybe they're not global systemically important, but you know, maybe if these guys had a big debt stack, then they can re-equitize in a case of, of, of an issue, right? And so that's where we're headed. You know, I'm interested, Herman, do you think part of the reason Schwab was be able to raise money in bond markets, and from what I understand, at slightly fav more favorable terms than they initially set out for, is there a huge difference between how investors view like a Schwab versus a PacWest? Is Schwab viewed as much safer? Oh, I think definitely, just given the, the stable deposit base. and um, they, they, Schwab hasn't had to restructure their, their entire balance sheet like, like a Western Alliance has, where Western Alliance is looking to sell assets and, and seeing deposits down you know, nor, somewhat uh, like 20% inter quarter in the first quarter. So uh, you, you can just see from the equity uh, valuations where, where PacWest is trading well south of tangible book value. And what investors are thinking about now is that you know, how, how much can, can the bank return back to a normal situation versus the Schwab is still operating in a normal fashion. So I happen to think, I guess what I learned during this whole crisis from, I guess, your stuff and others is there's, there's the U.S. has roughly more than 4,000 mm -hmm. regional banks. I happen to think that's a strength of our banking system vis-a-vis, -vis, say, Europe, where right. they have less banks, they have more national banks. Um, a, is that true do you think that's the strength of our banking system and and b maybe if not is there gonna be some consolidation going forward it is it is a strength because um i think of it as shopping for for a suit or or a um a, a jacket if you go to brooks brothers you can buy something off the rack and that's it's going to be 42 you know, regular for me right 42 are so yeah. you you know what you're getting but the regional banks offer a bit more of a bespoke type of experience where, where they will work with the borrower. You know, it's not going to be a cookie cutter type loan that you would get at a JP Morgan or a B of A. And these, these regional banks know their community a bit better, so um, can, can structure a deal that's more favorable for, for that potential borrower. So that's, that's something that, that is helpful for the U.S. economy where, where you have credit, more credit availability versus other you know, regions and geographies like in Europe. All right, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Two experts, folks. I can't tell you how fortunate we are to have these folks available to us. Hermit Chan and Arnold Kakuta. they cover the banks, equities, fixed income, credit side, the whole thing. They got the banks covered along with Allison Williams uh, on some of the bigger banks there. So great, great research coming out of Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, they're both joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York Station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
You know, we talk a lot, Shanali, about inflation, but where one of the areas I see it most is in food prices, whether it's, you know, at a restaurant or in the supermarket. And here's an article just from a week or so ago from Bloomberg uh, News. U.S. prices of baby formula and baby food jumped by the most on record to an all-time high last month. That would be April. Data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed Wednesday. Prices in the category rose by 4.3% in April from the prior month and from a year ago. They're up 8.8%. So I said, we need to figure out what's going on there. And fortunately, we have a, a, a great guest who can help us out there. Laura Modi, she's the CEO and co-founder of Bobby. And Bobby is a baby formula delivery startup that sells direct to consumer and offers a subscription service to parents across the U.S. So a pretty cool business. We've been talking to Laura a lot over the last several years during the pandemic when there really was a, uh, a you know, a, a concern about the availability of, of baby formula. So, Laura, it, it, give us a sense of where the baby formula is, where, where the market is for baby formula now. I mean, the pricing is just, and the price inflation is just really dramatic, isn't it? It is. Good morning, Paul. Great to chat with you again. Um, it is. And, you know, I think it's also disheartening on the back of what parents have just gone through, which is a very tough year for formula and just not being able to find it. Now we're finally seeing shelves get stocked and they are seeing prices go up. I mean, look, where this is coming from is it really is because of the shortage. A few things happened off the back of last year. And the first is, I believe in March, the FDA came out with new regulations that really supported up-leveling safety. And that forced, ultimately, a change in production and infrastructure with the hopes of improving safety, getting more formula to market. And the consequences of that was seeing an increase in price. I'm kind of curious here about how you got the job done. Laura, I think you have such an interesting background. You've been written about as a wartime CEO for your work during this infant formula crisis. Yep. You've worked with some really interesting names, including Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, to raise some of the money to get this done. How do you bring people on board? Great question. Um, honestly, it's it's approaching this in the complete opposite way that the, the industry has for the last few decades. It's representing your customers, who they are. I'm the only female CEO of an infant formula company, and it starts there. Um, we have been able to relate to parents throughout the shortage by making one of the toughest decisions when the shortage hit, which was we became the only formula company to reliably continue to serve our subscribers. And I had to make a really tough call at the time stop growing the business while we kept product in stock for our current subscribers. So where are you in, in terms of your company, Bobby? Just give us a sense of how, you know, the last couple of years have been for you during the pandemic and maybe, you know, how are things right now? And they've been a long few years and they've definitely been accelerated, obviously, throughout the pandemic and then the shortage. Uh, we're in a position right now where we're serving about 3 to 4% of babies born in the U.S continuing to grow, but growth also comes with having to invest in infrastructure and supply. So our sites are now set on what are we doing to be able to grow our supply and continue to serve more of the population. And that in itself just takes further investment, which I'm setting my eyes on. Setting your eyes on, the other thing you've done too, beyond expanding a business here, is that you've taken to Congress as well to make changes to, uh, to kind of solve some of the crisis that had been seen in the shortages. Talk to us about that process. Oh, look, Bobby's entire existence is to reform the industry. It's not just to get out there and sell infant formula. When you look at 
the ingredients, the way the product is made up, even how it's sold, and the narrative that surrounds it, it is fundamentally broken. So when the shortage hit, we put out a hotline to allow customers to call in with their fire and fury, basically to tell Congress what needs to change. We created bobbyforchange.org, which allowed us to go out and really fight for policy changes to support parents, to support mothers where they're at. And one of those policy changes that we're looking to change is to put out a bill to be able to support more production and more manufacturing domestically in the U.S. so that we don't experience a shortage again. And I very fortunately happened to be here in D.C. beside it all, and uh, to see the action and momentum from this has been wonderful. So, Lar, why isn't the marketplace taking care of this itself? Why do we need uh, regulation? Aren't the manufacturers themselves saying we need to diversify our manufacturing we need to diversify our, our suppliers isn't this what what are the big players in this mm. baby food business saying i think uh, in a regulated industry there's really three legs to the stool on this there is the private sector of course and companies themselves are looking for ways to diversify but because it is regulated it's also having the support of both government and the fda as well and if those three agencies can come together and figure out how within the next seven to ten years we can look back at a truly reformed industry, and I mean reformed domestically, using domestic suppliers, local farmers, and be proud of our infant formula, then I think those three bodies will have done the right job. But it will take the three of them coming together. Three of them coming together. I think Paul's question on suppliers here are interesting, but equally, you know, I'd like to double down on this idea here that you worked at Airbnb, you worked at Google Finance. What role is the internet playing in helping you get the job done? I think I think it starts with just the mindset of being able to look at a traditional industry and say that we can do differently. Airbnb was born on uh, the back of of seeing travel being different and disrupting really the travel industry. So we come at this with a mindset which is it can be different and the status quo isn't good enough. But I also do believe that technology, whether it's tracking supply and the data surrounding in-stock rates, which frankly, if they were all in place to begin with, we would not be staring at the shortage today. So I think using data and, you know, even dare I say this movement towards AI as well, I do believe can get us into a position where we're not going to be dealing with another crisis in the future, and we've just gotten ahead of it. Laurie, we've got about 30 seconds left. Over the next uh, year or two, what's the biggest challenge or opportunity for your company, Bobby? Um, I think it really is production. We need to be in a position where we are not waiting on the edge of our seats and questioning if another shortage happens, will we be able to serve the market? We need to break up concentration and competition and introduce more players to the market. Laura Modi, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Laura Modi, she's a CEO and co-founder of Bobby. And Bobby is a baby formula delivery startup that sells direct to consumer and offers a subscription service to parents across the U.S. When we first got introduced to Laura, you know, a few years ago during the pandemic when we really had that shortage. And that, if you think back and how serious that was at the time and we needed a, a smart voice to kind of explain it all to us, explain the challenges, and, and Laura was that person. So we're like checking in with Laura every once in a while to see how that business and the, the you know, the greater food business and distribution business, how that's uh, playing out. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, right now, we're going to bring in Ira Jersey. He's the chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, um, Ira, we've got uh, current Fed Chairman Jay Powell, former Fed uh, Chair Ben Bernanke, making some comments today. What are you taking away here? Uh, well, first, I'm, I'm taking away that there's multiple headlines going on at the same time, and it's hard to pay attention to right. everything. <laughs> That's number one. Number two, um, you, you know, I think I think uh, Chair Powell's comments about um, forward guidance and about the market not uh, pricing what the dot plot says and, and uh, that it seems like the market has a different forecast than the Fed um, – and, you know, hinting that we think that we'll be right based on the incoming data that we've seen recently, um, I think is interesting. It's, it's not going to be enough to jawbone the market as significantly, maybe, as, as he hopes it would. Um, you know, I think the, um, the fact that we're pricing in a significant chance of rate cuts later this year is, is easing financial conditions and actually might be making their job a little bit harder than it would be if, if we were uh, pricing for the Fed to be on hold a bit longer mm-hmm. than, than we currently are. It, to the point on competing headlines, you had this idea here that the banking stress is, is taking hold from Powell, but then you have the debt ceiling talks at the same time. You had a big drop-off in yields from the Powell con- comments, or not big, but, but, but you know, meaningful yeah, on sure. the day. Uh, and then, you know, you're seeing a slight rise once again. If you think about it, we're just getting all these headlines. We're still getting Powell headlines, uh, the most recent being that Fed was expected further tightening until recently okay uh, which is significant which force wins out the fiscal strains or the or the monetary ones well I think near, near term the market's gonna probably react to the debt ceiling angst uh, quite significantly so our model still shows that uh, the government runs out of money on June 5th so someone doesn't get paid on that day and then the June 6th uh, t-bills are uh, significantly at risk of maybe missing a payment and um, so, so I think that the markets and, and risk assets in, in particular are going to wind up moving, um, you know, quite dramatically probably on, on some of these uh, debt ceiling headlines. You know, it's not obvious what the Republicans are trying to get out of um, the, the, these negotiations. You know, it's like, um, you know, obviously the Democrats want something clean. Um, the, the Republicans want to use this as a bargaining chip to try to reduce government spending uh, and, uh, and reduce deficits. Um, 
but at the same time, you know, that there's there's a time to do that and there's a time not to. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea that deficits are too high, that the stock of debt outstanding right now is making uh, liquidity in some markets and even in the treasury market itself a, a challenge, just because of the of the quantum of of, uh, of treasury securities mm-hmm. available. Um, so, Ira, but, but at the same time, you know, you you play this game when the when the right you're working on a budget, not when you're working on whether or not you're going to pay your bill. Right. But here we are again. And the thing is, to most of the country and to most of the world, what they see is a bunch of sparring in Washington for uh, something that usually works itself out at the very end. But from where I'm sitting, covering markets, banks, market makers, investment firms that are levered towards treasury and repo markets, there are more worries and, and this gentle sense of panic under the market, right? That things will be very volatile and potentially throw things off course you know how drastic are we going to have to um see i mean do you think we'll have to get to the point that the fed would have to step in i mean at at what point are some of these sharp moves going to be troubling for the market well i don't think the the fed will step in because they they, you know their their job is financial stability and if congress doesn't want financial stability then you know that the fed reserve is going to be the uh financial stabilizer of last resort but but that probably doesn't come unless the unless the government actually defaults on the debt i would suspect or downgraded that. right well it, yeah down, but downgraded doesn't necessarily mean a whole heck of a lot mandates don't change so most mandates for fixed income investors globally is that you can buy you know sovereign government debt of oecd countries um you know agency debt so in in the united states most uh, most mandates say treasuries agencies and then you know investment grade or or triple a corporates right so 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 treasuries are still a completely separate asset class from that that are that are devoid of ratings at least for now um you know that might that could change in the future potentially but you look at somewhere like japan japan hasn't had a triple a credit rating in ages and ages and yet they their interest rates don't have a particular problem so um you know sovereign ratings for investment grade uh, for, for for very high rated um company uh, countries that uh, issue debt primarily in their own currency um, really don't mean a whole heck of a lot um, because it really has more to do with investor sentiment and with not with um, the ability to pay, but the willingness to pay, which is exactly what we're dealing with right now with the debt limit. Ira, what do you think are the, the, the upcoming key data points that we need, to, we need to be focusing on, maybe the Fed is focusing on? Um, what should we be looking for? Yeah, so we have the the PC data coming up next week. Um, you know, that's probably this, the the biggest one that that we have. You know, we we got a revision in GDP. That's uh, you know not probably not going to be significantly market moving, but but the PC data that we get because that's for April. So that's going to be important for uh, you know where GDP and where consumer spending and, and what the inflationary uh, impulse is. Remember that the PC deflator um, uses similar data to the CPI, but but the weightings are different. So the weightings are weighted more toward what actually was purchased in uh, in the month of April. So that's one reason why the Fed Reserve concentrates on that particular measure. And so, so there will be some modest uh, differences between that data and what we got in CPI, but but regardless, you're still likely to see um, the uh, inflation continuing to move lower, but just at a, um, you know, but still wind up, you know, well above four percent, for example, on a year-on-year basis uh, for the uh, headline PC. And and in that scenario, Ira, the, does the Fed just kind of sit on the sidelines and wait, and that the, it really is a pause? 
Yeah, that's what I think the, the Fed's most likely to do. And, and Powell did hint at that during his remarks today. Um, and, and I think that the Fed would it would behoove the Fed at this point just to take a wait and see action. They can talk about, you know, the uh, long and variable lags of how monetary policy works. They can still say, like, the banking sector is, um, you know, still tightening uh, financial conditions. You look at the senior loan officer survey and some other measures of, of credit uh, conditions. And, and they can say that, you know, credit conditions are modestly tightening and, and we're just going to take a wait and see approach and of course they'll they'll say that symmetric you know that that in the future if inflation does in fact you know rebound we can hike more um i think if if he couches it in in those kind of language then maybe the market will wake up and we'll start to price out some of the cuts that are currently uh in the market kind of as a risk management measure all right ira thanks so much for joining us i really appreciate getting your insights you're listening to the tape catch our live program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio the TuneIn app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 1130 we need to roundtable this in a big way we've got some smart people that are joining us now. So we got Abigail Doolittle. She covers all the markets for Bloomberg Television. She joins us here in our studio. Billy House, he's down in Washington, D.C. He covers uh, Congress for Bloomberg News. He's going to join us, give us the latest on what's happening with these debt talks. Uh, and then we have a real treat here. Monica Defend, chief strategist at Amundi. Amundi is an extraordinarily large global investor. We'll get a great global view of kind of how the markets are viewing what's happening here in the States and abroad. Uh, Abigail, let's start with you. What are we seeing in these markets? Uh, a little bit of intraday volatility, if not a lot. And it's cross-asset and, of course, has to do with all these different headlines that we've seen. Now, I'll start off with uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell. Every now and then, he drops, I don't want to say uh, a, a, a bomb, but a surprise. Uh, and I would, I would characterize his thought that rates may not need to rise as high, given credit stress, as a possible, not pivot, but a nuance worth watching going forward because he's been pretty consistent in his message to my memory over basically the last year saying that the Fed is hiking, rates are going higher, the hikes may get smaller, but they're gonna go higher, higher, higher. And he, now all of a sudden he's saying, whoa, credit stress, bank turmoil, bank crisis, so maybe not as high. Now on that, we saw stocks take a little bit of a dip, but I'll stress the word little, because right now we have that S&P 500 down two tenths of 1%, although on an intraday basis, it has been a turnaround of almost uh, less than a percent, but close to. Shanali, not so long ago, was talking about the huge move we've seen in yields. Yields had been higher, then they were lower by uh, a considerable amount. They gave up 14 basis points on that headline. Now about flat on the day, the dollar down a little bit, and then following Powell having this, I'm going to call it the Powell nuance. I know it doesn't sound as good as the Powell pivot, but just to be accurate, the debt limit uh, talks hit a roadblock. And on that, we saw stocks drop a little bit too. Right. All right. I mean, let's just bring in Billy House because I, I need to figure out what's going on down in Washington, D.C., John. This I, is in the driver's seat, I think we can safely say. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. All right, Billy, you're down in D.C. here. It, now, when they... When the GOP negotiators walked out, did they angrily walk out? Did they did they hop, skip, walk out? Like, what what's going on down there? Well, I wouldn't say they stormed out, but they certainly walked out abruptly uh, after the meeting, shortly after the meeting began. And uh, the, the lead negotiator for Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, uh, Garrett Graves of Louisiana, said that they were being unreasonable, meaning the White House team, and that things were being put on pause. He didn't know if they were going to meet again today or even this weekend. Uh, he didn't get, provide any specifics, but we believe it has something to do with the discussions over work requirements. Uh, 
and uh, the, the hesitance of the White House to embrace anything that the, the House Republicans want in that regard. Where's the speaker? The speaker, and I'm standing right here in, in front of a door in which he's supposed to arrive at the Capitol and walk through at any second. Uh, he touched down, apparently, at the airport around 1130 and makes his way over here. We hope to get details from him uh, and, and details that are a lot broader than he's been giving us the last two days of over pessimism. I mean, over optimism, apparently. But but who knows? These things, people play roles. Uh, and you, again, we're on pause. We don't know if it's a breakdown, really, but they're calling it a pause. Uh, Monica, I want to bring you in here. Monica Defend, chief strategist at Amundi. Monica, how do how do investors view what's happening in Washington? This this long tortuous path of just trying to get to a point where the United States government can at least pay its bills. Uh, how do you think the markets are viewing it uh, all over the world? Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, uh, I'm so lucky because uh, uh, I'm based in Europe, and I have to say, guys, that. Uh, how we see things in Europe might be uh, a little bit different from our U.S. colleagues. So where it seems to us that there is, and there will be definitely, a lot of noise maybe um, entering in uh, in June on the market. So still, um, we are not that concerning that a technical uh, default won't happen in, uh, in our opinion. But we might be more worried on the people. So uh, these things might play out with people not getting their, their salaries or spending cuts uh, to, to kick in, and this uh, might be uh, painful for the U.S. economy. Monica, it's a date we've been climbing a wall of worry. Can we climb more with this added worry? <laughs> well, um, I think uh, that this might be, but it, it really depends uh, what kind of worries we are looking for. Whether uh, is on the market and volatility, yes, uh, this uh, will materialize. Uh, it is it is likely so, as we've seen so far. But then, when it goes down to more entrenched consequences on the economic cycle, uh, well, we expect this to be less likely. So, Abigail, these markets. Sorry, sorry, that blue button thing. So, Abigail, these markets here. What what do you think the markets kind of factoring in here as it relates to? Uh, this debt ceiling negotiations, that things have been kind of, the optimism has been kind of building for the last 24, 36 hours, and, and this was a little bit of a surprise here. It, yes, maybe a little bit of a surprise uh, for sure. On the other hand, if you go back to 2011, it really went down right to the wire. So I think that if investors, traders thought that this was, this pause is a breakdown, you would see a massive move, flight to safety uh, and out of risk assets. And I'm also about to pull up a, a term chart here because there's a very interesting divergence. It's a slight divergence that suggests that investors don't think that there's going to be uh, a, a default. And I'm just trying to find this here. Oh, boy, boy. Here, let's see. I'm just looking for Charts. the... Yeah, I'm looking... You're the chartress. This is less of a chartress chart and more of a, a rates chart talking about... I'll, I'll describe it, which is... I just am... I'm curious to see where the current levels are. I think this is going to be this chart, which basically those T-bills that are maturing in May... Okay, so this is interesting. It's moving a little bit. So the T-bills maturing in May on this announcement, they went from being around 350 
to now above 4%. So we're seeing a little bit of a premium place there. Investors de demanding a little bit more of a premium for bills that are maturing uh, next week, May 25th, and then the following Tuesday, May 30th. And then those bills due in June, they're all above 5%. So that divergence is still there. It had been wider prior to today. It had been a 2% divergence. So for those bills maturing this month with no debt ceiling drama or imminency of not being able to pay it immediately on these bills. Uh, it was demanding 350 relative to 550 for the other ones. The thing I would point out though, it's an interesting divergence. It tells you, yes, the markets are not totally asleep. They're aware that there is this stress down in Washington. But if anybody thought that the government were truly gonna go into default, I would make the case that those June bills, they would be at, I, I don't know how you would price this out. It would be bond math, but it'd be 10%, 20%, 30%, <laughs> wow. because you'd be looking at the possibility of not getting your, your premium back um, or your principal back, although I don't know for how long. I was having a complicated discussion with Doug Krisner and neither of us knew the, the answer on this, but that you would get your, your principal back at some point in the future, but then you're talking about opportunity right. cost. Hey, Billy House uh, on Capitol Hill waiting for the speaker. How much money do we have left? Uh, you know, I don't know as of today. Uh, I, I do know that there's differences of, of opinion. The, the speaker trying to push a deal uh, swiftly is, is saying that just the process here of getting a bill uh, written and then, of course, approved and dealing with the, you know, the flanks of both parties who will oppose anything uh, just makes the uh, makes the deadline, right. the June 1 uh, tentative deadline, uh, almost uh, we've almost uh, we're pushing right up against yep. it already. Yep. Hey, Monica, I want to get your perspective from, from Europe here. I mean, we, we see the central banks around the world, the ECB, the you know, the Bank of England, even the Bank of Japan. Um, do you, how, how well do you think this policy, it seems fairly coordinated, but I mean, what's the, what are you expecting next from some of these central banks? Well, uh, when it goes to the ECB, but also the, the Bank of England, uh, we think they are going to continue to yeah. hike. Okay, uh, thank and, you, guys. And the reason, Sorry, go ahead, Monica. And the reason, uh, and the reason being that the inflation uh, is proving stickier than, uh, than expected, while when it comes to the Fed, we think they are going to pause. Uh, with all the consequences that this might have, for example, on the on the U.S. dollar, uh, but uh, we had the Justice Schnabel uh, making uh, her statements in a speech uh, that has been just released uh, one hour ago, uh, saying that we need to disentangle uh, financial stability from from inflation, and in inflation will be the main target for the for the central bank. Actually, uh, we see 350. Uh, as a terminal uh, uh, rate because we don't think that eventually uh, economies uh, might afford uh, a terminal rate at four or, uh, or above. Yeah, Monica, as you're speaking, I'm looking at the DAX. You know, we almost closed at a record high for uh, the, yeah. the German DAX. Uh, is Europe continuing to outperform the U.S. and will that continue? Uh, to be to be honest with you, we've been uh, slashing down uh, our uh, exposure overall on uh, on equities um, with the cons with a concern uh, related to to GDP numbers and economic cycle. And it said that uh, while we expect uh, the U.S. to enter a recession uh, Q3 uh, Q4. Uh, 
on the euro area, we are still flattish. So probably, uh, let's see how the clouds uh, will get clear out uh, on the ECB. And then we will uh, might reconsider uh, any uh, opposition. But honestly, we doubt that we will have a striking outperformance of Europe versus the U.S. And we prefer to stay on the cautious side. All right, Monica, uh, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate you coming out and uh, spending a couple of minutes with us. Monica Defend, head uh, and chief strategist at Mundi Institute. Abigail Doolittle uh, covers all the markets for us for Bloomberg News. We appreciate getting her time. And Billy House down in Washington, D.C., literally on the steps of Congress, waiting to uh, see how that news breaks down there with the, with the talks. I want to bring in John Authors here, Bloomberg Opinion a, a, a columnist. Uh, John, a lot going on, a lot of big picture stuff here with the debt ceiling. Uh, yeah. We've got the Federal Reserve. Kind of, how do you put it all together? Because I can tell you, just looking at the screen right here, the, the market minute by minute is trying to figure out what's going on. I think with the debt ceiling, um, <laughs> this isn't going to be terribly helpful. People might ask why I'm being paid my salary. <laughs> you, you can't really make much of it. It's, it is the classic example of something that markets cannot deal with well, which is very low probability extreme events. Uh, not only that, it's a political event rather than a financial one that would then have financial consequences. So you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's completely reasonable that it would be having the kind of effect it will. The, the, the odds are very strong that we're not going to have a default. Um, I suppose I would try to, perhaps if there's one key issue that isn't looked at too much because people think of it as being so binary. Um, back in 2011, the, the, the really big debt ceiling set to, uh, the market tanked much further after the deal had been done successfully than it had done when the brinkmanship was still going on, basically because the Obama administration agreed to cuts that seemed um, implausibly difficult to... Uh, to, uh, to implement too many in the market. I think perhaps the actual detail of what um, concessions might be made isn't so binary, and perhaps we should be focusing more on that. You, you do see some signs that that's what um, people are beginning to look at. Hey, John, since the beginning of the year, S&P 500 up 9%, uh, NASDAQ up, what, over 20%. 22, is, the last I checked. Yeah. 22. Yeah. Is this being held together with spit and chewing gum? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's being held together. I, I, I wrote this up last night. It's, it's been woken, held together firstly by an absence of new bad news. So um, earnings for the first quarter were a bit better than pretty bearish expectations. Um, the un unemployment still hasn't absolutely tanked inflation isn't coming down as quickly as many would want, but at least it's not continuing to rise. So there's a, there is an absence of clear bad news, which is always good because there was a lot of bad news in the price. Uh, and, and then you've got the perverse effect of the banking crisis appears to have been that you know, the amount of liquidity that was available for banks to borrow against their bonds Money is fungible. It finds its way to where, where it can make a return. So that money is having an effect, even though um, uh, the Fed funds rate stays high. Uh, and then finally, we have 
uh, and this is another classic thing that markets find it very difficult to deal with, is uh, a genuine um, a genuine boom, a genuine moment of excitement this time over AI. Right. And um, I don't want to seem I, – I don't know enough about the subject to really – claim as to how it's going <laughs> to pan out right uh but you know the internet yep obviously really did change our lives in the end and that didn't mean that you couldn't lose a heck of a lot of money along the way right trying to figure it out all right i think that's it yeah all right john thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate you hopping on there uh when we want to know about ai we probably got some i'm gonna go to somebody you know, i'm, some I'm of the telling kids. you pets ai revive <laughs> pets AI. it's coming it's coming all right john tucker paul sweeney here with you we're gonna have more coming up this is bloomberg you're listening to the tape catch our live program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio the tune in app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 1130 all right charlie Pella, thank you so much we appreciate that all right we got john tucker as a co-host today so i figured we got to talk weed right john i mean let's well, just go there I'm, shall I take the perspective of a parent of yes, I, kids? So. Yeah, John, John's not a big fan of this whole legalized cannabis thing. But our next guest is Andres Fajardo. Close enough. CEO of uh, Clever Leaves, uh, ticker CLVR, uh, joins us here. Uh, Andres, you're based in Bogota, Colombia. You're up here. Um, talk to us about your company. How do you guys operate within the cannabis space? Yeah, th thanks for having me here. And, uh, you know, Clever Leafs is a company that was born with a very simple idea, which was you have to grow cannabis where you should, and then you have to sell it where you should. And that sounds a little silly, but regulation, you know, has made companies to grow cannabis where they are selling it. And that never makes sense. So we set up a company with operations in Colombia back in 2016. Uh, you know, we're a company that right there is the first one to get licensed. We're the largest right now over there with 1.8 million square feet of cultivation. I would say that we're quite unique because we have, uh, you know, all of the pharmaceutical certifications that you require to actually ship medical cannabis, you know, across borders. We have the European certification that allows us to do that, the Brazilian one, the Colombian one, and we also have the cost. So we are a very unique company with low cost, high quality, high scale uh, you know, of products that are shipping currently, you know, from Colombia to Brazil, to Germany, to Australia, to the UK. So that's our business model. We're a little different, and we're basically here to, to disrupt the cannabis market as, as it is. And it's a patchwork in the United States where states, some states have approved it, but on the federal level, it's still illegal. And you stay away from the United States because of that? Exactly. We, we operate where there are federal illegal markets where import and export is permitted. The U.S. Uh, you know, has legalized on a state-by-state -state basis with differences within its, each state and companies, you know, are called MSOs because there are basically mini companies in each of the different states. So, so we, well, you you don't operate in the United States. So we don't. You, you couldn't uh, we because couldn't. of important. We couldn't. Yeah. We are uh, and we're a Nasdaq listed company too, which means we're not a plant touching, you know, company in the U.S. at all. Uh, so we have an operation in the U.S. It's a nutraceutical business uh, that does nothing related to cannabis at this point, uh, you know, but is is a potential pathway to the U.S. when it 
opens up. But for now, we're focused on medical cannabis produced in Colombia and sent uh, all over the world. All right, so what are some of your growth markets? What are some of the markets that you guys are experiencing the most success? It's very interesting. You know, first, uh, you know, I sound like a broken record, but I think Brazil. Brazil yep. is going to become one of the largest medical markets in terms of patient counts, I think, you know, as soon as the end of this year. And the regulation in Brazil has been shaped in such a way that it has allowed for the larger pharmaceutical companies in that country to actually participate. It's highly regulated. You can take two years to register a product. It's very pharmaceutical. But once you're in, it's sticky. It has high barriers to entry. And with the power of large pharmaceutical companies, like, for example, our case where we have a, a, you know, a partnership with Hypera Pharma, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in Brazil, uh, and Greencare, a cannabis company over there, you know, it has huge potential. People don't look at it because, well, first, Brazil, South America is going to be big. Well, Brazil is one of the largest economies in the world, so, so yes. Uh, Australia is another very, really? very interesting mm. one. Australia, although it's a low population, it's a market that's been developing, has been growing, and now it's becoming more demanding in terms of the certifications and the requirements of the products. So while we were growing, you know, we had a product that was probably over spec. Now the requirements are increasing. So some of our competitors are being left out, which opens up a significant opportunity for us in Australia. Yeah, and other markets, I would say Germany is an interesting market for sure. You know, there is a change in legislation. It's still medical. They were going to go adult use. Uh, you know, people were all bullish on it. It will happen. It won't happen soon, as I've always said. Uh, but it basically expands medical. It gives us, you know, additional time and it broadens the opportunity for us. What's so, the difference between medical or medicinal uh, cannabis and recreational in terms of, is it the same product? It's just a question of how you market it? The product is basically the same. Okay. I, I would say the greatest, uh, you know, difference is that the medical requires a prescription mostly. Okay. While the adult use, you use it, you know, for for different yeah. uh, reasons. It doesn't mean that maybe somebody who uses adult use cannabis cannot use it for an illness they have. It's probable, or or vice versa. But uh, but it's basically prescription. Uh, uh, you know, would, would, would you consider getting in in your markets you're in getting into adult use? We would. We would. I think that a very interesting tailwind for us, for example, is that in Colombia. You know, the adult use regulation uh, has passed six out of the eight debates that must happen in Congress before becoming uh, effective. We're missing two. You know, we hope that they pass in the next month and a half, and that will be a tremendous market for us in terms of the size. You know, in Colombia, uh, you know, we have one of the largest or highest GDP, uh, sorry, not GDP, but <laughs> per capita consumption of uh, beer and alcohol. Mm -hmm. So it's a country that, you know, likes to enjoy life. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, for, for the opportunity for cannabis, uh, it, when it legalizes for adult use, is going to be great, and we have a very good position to be in. Did a legal company, a publicly traded company like, did you run into in Colombia the illegal drug trade, a conflict there? Not at all. Not at all. It's completely different product. The channels are completely different. <laughs> you know, we don't even, even you know. Uh, you weren't stepping on anybody's toes. No, not really. <laughs> That, that's the reality not. So, Andres, you've, you've, you're here in New York City here. I'm sure you've been walking up and down the streets of uh, New York, and you see every block has got multiple... Okay, every time I leave this building, I'm not saying it's here, but it's yeah. just like the smell wafting yeah, through the it's, air. It's the new world order. you got to get used to it. Yeah. But, I mean, every block has got three or four of these stores, and, by the way, they're not legal. What, what do you make about how we're doing it here in the States and maybe even in, in New York? You know, as I said, we don't operate in the, in the U.S., but what I do know from uh, from our peers who do is, you know, there are states that are getting it right, that are doing it, in a, you know, in a more organized way. 
Uh, you know, the only way I think you can really maintain a business uh, that's so highly regulated and has, you know, makes you produce where you need to sell is such is one where you control supply a little bit when, you know, when you control the whole supply chain. So there are some states doing that. You have, you know, states like California where very few people are making money because there's a lot of supply, et cetera, et cetera. And New York, you know, New York is one of these states that everybody's paying attention to. And I think, you know, there's a problem with, with the evolution of regulation, but also in reality with the, with, 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 you, know, uh, you know, making sure that there is enforcement, right? Because yep. uh, some of this things continue, it's going to make it more difficult for the more legal cannabis operators. 20 seconds, you came to market through the vehicle, uh, a SPAC, right? Why was that? Like 20 seconds. No, uh, we, we, we were looking uh, to finance the company further. We wanted to have access to the NASDAQ and the markets. We had the operations that allowed us to be in the, in yep. the NASDAQ, and, and it was a, a good way to do it back in 2020. Yeah, back in the day, that was the, the time of the SPACs. Oh, well, so much for that. So much <laughs> for that, yeah, exactly. All right, Andres, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you uh, coming into the studio here. Andres Fajardo, CEO of Cleaver Leaves. That is a NASDAQ-traded uh, stock, CLVR, talking about the... Uh, cannabis business the medical and cannabis. i didn't give my anti-cannabis rant you didn't I give want you to thank me for that rant. yep as a parent i i get where you're coming from uh but this is the new world order at least in a lot of states here uh in the u.s all right we're gonna have more coming up we got a little bit of red on the screen that continues we'll have some some more coming up this is bloomberg thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.